from me. Uh, Psalm 71, of course, as we have been studying and reading through this particular psalm, we have found a number of things that have stood out with regard to the seasons of life, the life of David and how God has been his constant shelter, his constant companion, and that in all things and in all situations and all afflictions and all trials, uh, that God has remained steadfast and faithful uh, in his presence before God. And of course, that is our hope today. And we've entitled this particular exposition a theology of hope because hope is, in fact, it is doctrinal. It is, it is theology. Uh, it's a characteristic of who God is and what God has done. And that expression today of, oh, God, be not far from, from me, uh, is found there in verse number 12. And uh, when we read it on its surface and we think about it, if we were to take that verse alone, we would think that David is suggesting that God has moved away from him. But in the context of the psalm, David is more repeating what he already knows God to be, not what God has actually done. Uh, if we were to start suggesting that David is suggesting that God has moved away from him, uh, that God has moved his presence from David, uh, we would have a lot of theological problems we'd have to answer. We'd have a lot of really quandaries we'd have to say, well, wait a minute, if, if God is moving away from David, a believer, one whose trust has been in the Lord since his youth, uh, what does that say about God? And yet, David is more repeating back what he already knows God to be. Uh, he knows that God is not far from him. And uh, he's beginning in these, the middle part of this psalm. And what leads us to the climax of the psalm is bringing us back to the reminder that even through these afflictions, even through these trials, uh, David knows that God is still there and God is still present. Now, as we've made mention, there have been times when David, is make, he makes specific mentions of the time period or the age in which he is thinking about. In verse 9, he tells us what he's thinking about. He says, cast me not off in the time of old age, forsake me not when my strength faileth. So David's now thinking down the road. Now, some have suggested that David penned this psalm in his old age. Uh, some have suggested that David penned this in middle age, but uh, regardless of what he's saying here, he's acknowledging that there's this time period that's considered old age. And this time period that he makes an association with the realities of old age where his strength fails. Now, I think he's talking about physical strength, but I also think that with this physical strength, he's also beginning to understand the frailties of his own humanity. And I think he also even begins to think that these frailties and these afflictions might actually lead me to be spiritually, to feel spiritually without strength. Now, there is a connection, and some people will tell you this, between physical health and physical ailments and seeming sometimes to be a lack of spiritual strength. So I don't think it's beyond the scope of possibilities that David was not only talking about physical strength, but talking about uh, it would be unthinkable for him to consider his old age and have no spiritual strength. But when David was young, of course, David didn't think about those ailments. He didn't think about those afflictions. He didn't think about losing spiritual strength. And oftentimes in our young uh, lives, especially if we're, we, we're converted at a young age, uh, there is a vigor that we attack Christianity with. 
And I think all of us, many of us are old enough in this room to either, either remember it because it was a long time ago or it's been recent, but there's a vigor in which we attack the things of God. And we think, you know, I can, I can do all things through Christ with strength of me, as Paul said, I can do it because I have the vigor and the strength and the ability and the stamina to do it. And David, of course, his life of the things he accomplished for God at a young age are amazing. I mean, we know the, the, main, the main story we hear about David being able to subdue Goliath. And we understand that even during his younger years, he was able to subdue the Philistines. David has a catalog of victories he could point to back in his life and says, look at all these things I've done for God and look at how strong I was. It's almost unthinkable that a man like David now is considering, now in my old age, God, don't cast me off. And God, in my old age, when my strength is failing, don't cast me off. Now, again, I don't think David is thinking for one minute that God is somehow done with him or that God's going to push him away. I think David's more coming to the reality of his own uh, frailty. So if David is, in fact, old when he penned this, and we'll make that assumption this morning, if he is now old, uh, think about what's happening here. His son and those who were... uh, at one time, his subjects, people who he was ruler over, who's king over, are now, they're against him. You know, when Absalom rebelled against David, he had an entire following of people. This wasn't just Absalom. He had a lot of the kingdom now had David on the run. So David, even in this part of his life, he is beginning to feel the infirmities of age. Um, when you're young, you don't think about this. You just don't. When you're very young, you don't think about infirmity. You don't think about your age. As a matter of fact, anybody who's 20 years older than you is ancient. I mean, I remember when I called people who were 50 ancient. Well, I'm 50. That's not ancient. I can assure you, I'm not ancient. But there is the frailties there that were not there 25 years ago. So David is acknowledging there are frailties. There are things that are happening to me that he is feeling those infirmities. Now, what they are, we're not sure what David's specifically saying. We're not sure exactly what he understands, but we know some of them because we feel them. Those infirmities that we feel at an older age are the same things David was feeling. Uh, David's feeling his strength is waning. David's looking back and thinking, where's that David that went out to the battlefield and proclaimed to those much older than me, is there not a cause to take down Goliath? And of course, he was not saying, I'm the one doing it. He said, the battle is the Lord's. And since it's the Lord's, we can go in confidence knowing that God is going to give us the victory. So this shows us that old age brings David to a time of a need of prayer. Oftentimes, our prayer life is directed by what we think we need. Sometimes we don't pray because we think my strength is enough. And I think I said this last week. I think we rely on our own strength and ability more than we care to admit that we do. I think there's a part of us that says, oh, I rely on God in all things. But we're, it's because we're doing so many things that we think, hey, I'm doing this all on my own. But it's God. But when we start to get a little frail and we start to get a little weak, uh, suddenly now we feel like a time of prayer. So David offers up what appears to be a prayer. When he says, cast me not off, 
in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength faileth. Now, as much as this seems like a prayer, uh, many of the commentators suggested that this is actually an expression of faith. That David is assured that you will not cast me off in my old age and that you will not forsake me when my strength fails. Now, why would he say that? Because his enemies, much like the Lord Jesus Christ, when David was ejected from that kingdom and ejected from that throne, do you know that the, the accusations towards David was, your God has forsaken you? When Jesus Christ was allowed himself to be taken in the garden and was marched through the town and marched through the city and then scourged and then taken up to Calvary's hill, there were those that were saying, if this was the Messiah, his father just forsook him. So that's what the enemy was saying. The enemy was saying, you've been forsaken by God. Now, there are times in history where man... Other, I think, well, well-intentioned Christians have made the mistake of telling somebody else, well, you know what's going on in your life. God's forsaken you. You must have something in your life that's made God turn his face against you. And most cases, that's not what's happening at all. It's feeling the frailty. It's feeling the frailty of life. And sadly, sometimes in our older age, they start to believe the enemy's lies. What David is doing is expressing faith in the face of the enemy's lies. He's saying, I know the enemy's lying to me. And do you know, you can be certain today of when God has told you the truth and when the enemy's lying to you. How do I know I'm being lied to by what the word of God tells me? David in this psalm is going back and forth telling God who God is and what God is. And then he's expressing these expressions of faith by reminding himself and we'll see this in just a minute, why I believe he's not saying, I think you might cast me off, because he's going to make, he remembers one of the promises that God makes to him. So notice in then, and then the context, because he says in verse 10, for mine enemies speak against me, and they that lay wait for my soul take counsel together. Now the counsel was what? The counsel was David, was against, was with Absalom and Ahithophel. Ahithophel was David's trusted counsel. He's speaking specifically about the counsel, the alliance now that Absalom and Ahithophel have together. And he says, they're counseling together against me to remove me and to keep me out of the kingdom. So David has been driven. And there's no question, if you study the scripture, you'll find out David was actually driven into the wilderness. He was driven away. It looked like he was losing the battle. And he had every reason in the world to think, what, what's happening here? And yet, the same people, or same types of people in Jesus' day, saw Jesus being led out of Jerusalem, being led out, saw him crucified upon a Roman cross. And to make an assumption, why would a good God allow that to happen? that person must be forsaken. David was not forsaken by God, nor was the Lord Jesus Christ forsaken by God in the sense of what the enemy was saying. But his enemies, he said, are speaking against me. And you might say that David's enemies were saying, 
what he looks and, and here's how we know that's what they're saying. Look what it says in verse 11. The counsel they're taking together saying, God hath forsaken him. So isn't that what they're saying? They're saying David's been forsaken by his God. That was the, that was the word going out. Persecute and take him, for there is none to deliver him. They're basically saying David is wide open. His God's forsaken him, which means what? David has no protection from his God. We can do whatever we want to do to him now. We can persecute him and we can even take him because God's not there to rescue him. Remember, all those that would falsely say, I wish Jesus would have been rescued from the cross before the crucifixion. That's not what you want. You want no part of a rescue. You don't want the calling of 10,000 angels to remove him off the cross. You don't want any part of that. Because it was what was happening at the cross was the accomplishment of the very thing in which we rejoice in today. And the confidence and the hope we have is what took place there on the cross. But the enemy is the one that's saying this. Folks, I can't tell you, just by way of an application, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to over the years and counseled with who the problem, the issue is not that there's a problem. The issue is not that there's an actual affliction. The issue is not that there's an actual persecution. The issue is they believe the enemy more than they believe God, and they believe what the enemy's telling them about God. That's why you have to be so careful about the counsel that you get. And when, you're, when you have a problem in your life and you have a spiritual issue, the best counsel is not necessarily your favorite person. But it's the person who understands and can remind you what God has actually said. Thus saith the Lord, not what the enemy's telling you. There are people out of churches all over this world that are out of church because they believe the enemy and they didn't believe God. This is what the enemy was saying. Now, David, because of that, does respond with that thought, oh, be not far from me. Now, how do we know that that's not the case? Well, because ultimately David was going to be restored to the throne. And ultimately, with regard to Christ, what happens? There's the resurrection. The resurrection is evidence, folks, that God the Father did not forsake the Son. The resurrection is the proof that justice was satisfied, the law was fulfilled, God the Father was pleased, and Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Now, there's no question that the words of his enemies, of David's enemies, and our Lord's enemies, there's no question that they probably grew louder and louder and louder. And the longer David was driven away the more the voices got louder, the more intense they got, the longer his denial of the throne continued. But what did this give David the opportunity to do? David's affliction and David's being driven into the wilderness away out of the throne gave him this opportunity to be driven to prayer. And driven to prayer, not necessarily to ask for a right now deliverance, 
but to pray reminders to himself about just how good God is and how God is not going to forsake me. Now, remember, David has a catalog of sins, just like all of us. And in our humanity, we think, well, God has a right to forsake me. God should forsake me. God should do this because I did this. But the problem is, the Bible says, if you are in Christ, if you are in his hand, it is impossible for God to forsake you. You can't be forsaken by God. You cannot be driven away from him where he's no longer your father. So this deals with something we call about spiritual perspective. That's my term. It's not scriptural. It's not here. But it's spiritual perspective of viewing the reality of where we really are facing through the lens of scripture instead of through the lens of the enemy. Folks, I can't tell you how many times Christians have been deceived by the enemy to believe something that just isn't the case. It's not true. But yet, we have to be understanding that affliction and trials and struggles are not always the direct result of something that we've done. So what is David looking for? What's David teaching us that he needs? He needs God's presence. He needs God's help. And quite frankly, he needs God's relief. This man's been driven to the place where he's, he, he, he has, no other, has no other source of comfort. So David then speaks back again to the Lord about not being far from him. And he speaks back a promise. Let them be confounded and consumed that are adversaries to my soul. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor that seek my hurt. Now, some of this I've outlined already. But you'll notice that David's prayer was that his mouth would be filled with the Lord's praise. He desired that in every act, in every part of his life and walk, in his family, in the church, in his kingdom, in his present afflicted state, that all of his thoughts would honor God. And really what these first verses, verse 9, 10, 11, and 12, David had composed and had written many of these psalms when he was young. So in David's old age, when he's looking back, he's remembering what he wrote. He's remembering what the Spirit led him to write. But verse 13 is really the key because David knew, I got my, the numbering wrong there, obviously. David knew his adversaries would be confounded and consumed. David says there in verse 13, let them be confounded and consumed that are adversaries to my soul. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor that seek my hurt. This fully proves and truly, truly shows that David knew this is what God's promises were. God's promises are what is now in view. It's what he sees. There can be a wrong view of what we see. Now, I'm not intentionally tying this in, but I told you not being able to see like I should be able to see has led to me misreading 
from time to time because I'm not looking through the right lens. I'm not looking through the lens of God's word. And David, is, is, his view is, I have God in my view. I'm not listening to what the enemy's saying. I'm listening to what God is saying. I'm listening to the things that I composed. That's the God that I'm dependent upon. David's past faith is now being exercised in the present, and it leads him to come to the conclusion that there's a certainty in what God is going to accomplish. Even in the worst of times, even in the worst of circumstances, in the worst of afflictions, folks, that should not alter your faith and expectation in what God has declared will be so. Now, it's in those afflictions that oftentimes we don't, begin to, we don't really begin to understand, what have I really been depending on? Because in the strength and vigor of our youth, that becomes the time when we say we trust in God, we say our faith is unwavering, but has your faith really been tested? To where now you can say, oh yes, God has been my hope since I was a very small child. God has been my hope. You know, can we say if God lets us live to be 95, 100 years old, can we say at 100 years old that from the time I was 10, God has been my hope? And I will promise you between the age of 10 and the age of 100, if you live that long, you're going to have affliction after affliction, frailty after frailty, and you're going to have more than one time when you felt like God forsook you. That's a guarantee. That's not a prophetic statement. That's just what Scripture says. You throw in the reality of those who will claim Christ as their Savior, you can also expect that not only affliction, but you can expect persecution. And I would suggest to you, if you find yourself in persecution, you're doing something right. If you're being persecuted for your faith someday, you're not doing wrong, you're doing right. The apostles counted it worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. They didn't say, why am I suffering? They couldn't believe they were counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. David, no doubt, in all of these situations, had expectation of God. He had a reminder of God's promises. He was reminded of God's faithfulness. And David understood that even one day, there's coming a day when all the workers of iniquity, all the enemies of Christ himself, all the enemies of God will one day it will be they who is cast off. Not him. The, the Bible has a horrifying consequence for those who are not in Christ. To be cast into a lake of fire, there's no watered-down way I can convey that to you. We're talking about an eternal separation, an eternal torment. We're talking about a very real place called hell. We're talking about a place that's reserved for the devil and his angels that will be very well will be the residing place of all the workers of iniquity who are not in Christ. David knew I'm not one of those. But he also understood, and he makes this vow, if you will, in verse 14. He says, but I will hope continually and will yet praise thee more and more. Number three is a tough one because David's proving here in verse 14 
that he was made better due to his afflictions. His afflictions and his suffering made him better. I don't mean better from a human standpoint. I mean it made him better from a spiritual standpoint. Because what is his response to this? I will hope continually. And will yet praise thee more and more. He doesn't say I'll hope continually and praise you more and more if you take care of Absalom and Ahithophel and take care of all those that want me dead and want me out of the throne and want me out of the kingdom. He says I am going to hope continually because of what I know about you. This word continue is an important word in scripture. It's an interesting word study. If you're, if you're interested in those kind of studies, go through and find the use where the word continue and continually is used and especially look at those words with relation to the promises of God. That, if you want a good, a good devotional, there's a devotional for you. Look up that word continue. And what it really means and what David is saying is his own continuing of his own expression of faith. He was made better in the affliction because it made way for prayer. Now, we shouldn't have to have a reason to pray. But sometimes God opens up these avenues like it did for David. It was a way in which it certainly drove him to prayer. Not only did it drive him to prayer, but it also reminded him of the real communion he had with God. Folks, one of the things I think we don't spend enough time, and I think it's because we've been spooked by the charismatics. Okay? And, and we shouldn't be. But you realize that this communion we have with Christ is not some mythical made-up fairy tale communion. That we are actually in communion with Christ. We are actually in fellowship with him. Not in some mystical, weird way that's falsely claimed to be evidenced by speaking some unknown heavenly language. But we have real communion with Christ because we are his and he is ours, as we sang in that song, his forever. We're, we belong to him. There's very real communion. The affliction drove David to remind him of the communion that he has with God. We've been, our family, just been thinking about even recently with the events of the last couple of years of how many people who've gotten very sick. And this is not a statement about what's happened, so don't even get me wrong. I'm just giving you an illustration. But I'm talking about people who've, who, have, who have sat in hospitals by themselves because family could not see them. And I want to ask you the question, who are they communing with? If they don't have God, they're communing with no one. But if they're in Christ, they're in constant communion with their Lord who saved them. That's very real communion. That's a communion that is not something that even can be compared to human relationships. As much as I love my family, as much as you love your family, the communion you have with Christ, it's, it's beyond compare. David's affliction, this rebellion against him, drove him to prayer, reminded him of his communion. What happens when we're driven to prayer and we're reminded of our communion? It enlarges our mind spiritually and our faith and something else increases. Our hope increases. 
We actually can be hopeful when everybody else is hopeless. And you and I have witnessed a version of hopelessness for the last couple of years that's been unmatched for a number of years. What you see in the world that pops up is anger and rage, and some of it is, but it's also people that are in a state of hopelessness that don't know, what do I put my hope and faith and trust in? Because they have nothing. They have no place to say, I have an actual steadfast certainty that my God or my source of hope is going to be exactly where it's always been. God didn't move away from David. But David is saying, this is unthinkable to think, what would I do if God moved far away from me? And I ask you that as a a believer today. What would you do if God moved far away from you and his presence was taken from you? His communion was taken from you. What would be the end result? You'd be hopeless. You'd be absolutely hopeless. David had not a wishful thinking to draw his hope from, but he had a full confidence that he could hope continually. Again, continually implies even in affliction at all times. David actually had ground to say, I know this to be so. I know this to be true. I know that what I'm saying and what I'm writing is true. What always amazes me, one of the many things that amazes me about Scripture is that all these years later, David is not writing about a God who used to be. He's writing about the same God that you and I now worship. So I can have the same hope that David had because I have the exact same God. God didn't change. And yet he had ground for saying and doing what he was doing. The Lord had appeared before him. The Lord had spoken to him. The Lord had kept all of his promises towards him. So David says, because of what you've already shown me, God, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to praise you the same as I always have. That's not what it says. Look, he says, but I will hope continually and will yet praise thee more and more. He doesn't say, I'm going to stay in the same level of praise I've been in. I'm going to praise you even more now because of what's happening. Because now I've been brought to a place where the certainty of your faithfulness is exactly where I expected to find it. Now we'll deal more with verse 15 next week, but let's just, let's just introduce this. He said, my mouth shall speak forth thy righteousness and thy salvation all the day. I know not the numbers thereof. It is only a believer. It is only a true believer in Jesus Christ that would wish and pray with their own mouth to be engaged in speaking of Christ and his righteousness and salvation. Nobody else in the world wants their mouth to be filled with the righteousness of Jesus Christ except the believer. Can you imagine the difference that that makes in the world when you encounter people who don't know Christ? They have no desire for their mouth to praise God. They have no desire for their mouth to be continually speaking the righteousness of Christ. But the believer does. Why? Because the believer has true evidence 
that Christ is worthy of my praise. If you're saved, you've been converted, I don't have to answer the question, is God worthy of your praise? You should already know the answer to that. And shouldn't it be the desire of all of us, as David, that continually, at all seasons, at all times, in any affliction, that there's never a day when I want to be consumed with anything else but praising you. That's what he's saying. And by the way, there's absolutely no better way for you to spend your life than praising God and praising the Lord Jesus Christ more and more. David, I believe, when he thinks about the praises that he would speak, he really doesn't even know where to begin. (coughs) Where do we begin? Some would say, I begin the day Jesus saved me. Some would say, no, you begin before the foundation of the world when God chose me. Does our praise for God start the day we got converted or start before we were even born? We go all the way back before the foundation of the world when God in his sovereignty and in his purposes, some reason, some purpose chose you and chose me without regarding anything that we might become or what we might do or because of any value in us. Imagine that kind of mentality being despised, and yet what I just said to you is despised by some. Because they would have to say, the only time God's worthy of my praise was the moment on that day that I prayed that prayer. That's when my praise started. My praise of the Lord started before I even knew he saved me. Because it's been he that gave me life. It's he who has preserved me by his providential hand, allowed me to come to the place where I would be a rec- recognize his grace, be saved by his grace, and then be allowed to speak his grace every day of my life. David's prayer was to be employed with the praising of God more and more. We may never be able to properly measure And I like what he says there. I know not the numbers thereof. It really suggests what I just said. He he doesn't know what the proper measure is to measure his own praise. I don't even know where to start. So I hope this morning what this will help us with is understanding that David believed God. And he believed God more than he believed his enemies. Now, it doesn't matter what size crowd you're in. It doesn't matter if it's a small church or a big church. There's somebody who's always battling that. They're battling what the enemy is saying. And they're either tempted to believe it or they are believing it. And I would say what David, one of the things, one of the many lessons we're taught today is trust God. Believe God. It's amazing to me the veracity in which some people will claim to that which is clearly false. I mean, we're living in a society where you can say anything at any time and just grab it as truth. No investigation, no research. You just say so and so said it, so it must be so. 
Yet the only source of truth, the only place to find truth, is in God's Word. So I hope, I hope that'll be a help to us this morning as we think about uh, David's thoughts here. So next week, we'll primarily, we'll kind of review verse 15 and pick up from there, and uh, we'll move on, and we'll see how far we go next week. All right?